Just because we have this really old Renault Scenic, and um, it's from a period... It's like the family car as well. It, it was sort of the exaggerates family car. the ridiculousness of like and, the um, family music thing. And it's a design feature in those, like, from the early 2000s, that they, they designed these cars with, like, this huge space in between the seats, which mm. now, of course, is filled, filled with really convenient things to put phones in and yeah. stuff like that. But that was, like, perfect to put, like, a 10-channel battery-up mixer <laughs> and, then, and, so, and then have all sorts of synths and amps in the back, so... So we actually did a tour of Europe two years ago with that setup as well. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Reales Santala. In this podcast, we're diving into the archives of conversations with composers, artists, and musicians at Reales, a festival for experimental music in Bergen, Norway. My name is Veldetuv, and each month for this podcast, I'll find a new conversation to share with you. This episode is named Infrasonic, the politics, production and performance of electronic music. The talk you're about to hear took place on a Sunday morning in the year of 2016 at Bergen Kunsthal during the 12th edition of Borealis, after a long Saturday night on the dance floor. Luis Marino, one of the curators from Collective Freethought, is leading the conversation. He's joined by musician Jalen, curator and musician Paul Purgis, Will and Frey from the group Yeyu, as well as artistic director of Borealis, Peter Minwell, as they are discussing the inspirations, strategies and infrastructures that form both the inside and the outside of their creative practices. So last year I was just trying to think about, well, infrastructure is a form of communication. If, and music, therefore, is a form of communication, obviously. And what are the infrastructures which support that form of communication? And so when Peter was saying, um, do you want to contribute or do something you know, around this again for Borealis, I thought, well, maybe we could have a conversation about um, how we might think about how music and the production of experimental sound and, and uh, festivals form other kinds of infrastructures which are needed in order to open up a kind of breathing space, uh, a space of creativity in which assemblies can happen, which aren't monitored, say, by police, which aren't restricted or governed by the rules, say, of market forces, uh, which aren't dictated by particular institutions or regimes. How do other, you know, what are the kind of other infrastructures which are needed for truly radical uh, assemblies to take, take shape? Do the power of sort of music and experimentation and particularly when they provide resources to bring people together through dance, discussion, and performance, and whatnot, do they provide another route towards taking power, assuming what we might call a kind of infra-power? And I'm very excited that we've got basically everybody who was playing last night, <laughs> more or less, two-thirds of who was playing last night. And this is um, maybe one of the sort of... Uh, downsides of too much experimentation, right, is that we've got a sort of a program where we have like a really banging rave night <laughs> the night before. And now we're having a sober conversation uh, the morning after. But this is, uh, but I think we can roll with it, right? Something for next year. To Something about, right? for next No, 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 I'm very happy with it. I'm very happy with it. Okay. Um, but, and I'm, I'm really pleased all of you could make it. So what I thought we could do is have a conversation where you sort of describe the objects, processes, artifacts, or the sort of infrastructures which enable you to develop your sound or carve out your sound or in a way create problems at the moment in developing your sound and reaching out to people and taking you know, in for power. So one of the ways in which we could do this then is just through an open conversation um, following um, where I just invite each of you just to, just, just to talk for as long as you like, really. About this, uh, about this idea and how it connects to you. So maybe we could begin with Freya and Will from Yeah You. Uh, and they played an amazing set last night. And it was a and what I loved about it, and this is part of the attraction, really, of electronic music in a way. And there's a sort of fetishism of kind of devices and apparatuses. And what I loved about what you guys had is that table just full of these small devices, objects that you're reassembling and playing with and creating this stuff. Astonishing music. And then um, maybe Jalen, we can go to you next after Yeah You. And then Paul, if you could say a, a little bit about your work as well. 
Um, Paul's working with us on um, the, the project that we're doing on infrastructure in September. Paul's also, um, as many of you probably know, uh, an emerging, uh, brilliant sort of artist, curator, and also member of one of the most interesting sort of electronic music outfits working at the moment in Europe, Empty Set. Um, so Paul's going to talk a little bit about his work. Uh, Jaylin, who I've said, you know, and as many of you heard last night, actually killed it with that set. It was, as we were saying earlier, I think Borealis was looking for a sort of an outlet of, uh, you know, of, of, of bass and sort of 808 uh, triplets, right? And, uh, and we got that. We got that. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was astonishing. I've asked Peter along because um, I'm interested in Borealis as an infrastructure, but you can take it any which way you want, actually. You know, because I know you brought your own machines, okay? Yeah, so maybe okay. we could start with, um, with Freya and Will then. What's your response to this infrastructure idea? Yeah, okay. Thanks a lot, Lewis. Um, it, it's interesting because you, you sort of indicated in the emails before what um, the angle that you were sort of asking us to approach it from. But in terms of the way you've just introduced the whole thing, um, what's now sort of flashing in my head is... Um, a bunch of ongoing, um, increasingly, I guess, increasingly focused and refined obsessions in my own life um, that at this stage now have reached a point where probably um, in terms of what Freya and I do together, um, it has to do with not actually think, not thinking about it with this in mind, but in terms of the way we actually work, eventually has to do with the idea that um, becoming more and more aware of how ridiculous it is that in what we call Western culture or European culture, in other words, people growing up in Europe or European America, you know, come to accept this culture, being something very separate that you uh, you work hard to buy or pay for a ticket for, or um, as an artist, you sort of prepare um, over months or, you know, refine things and, you know, product, in other words. Um, and uh, I'm getting more and more obsessed with the idea that that's sort of the key that that could unlock an awful lot of things for everybody sort of thing in a utopian sense. Um, if we realize that actually music and, um, well, creativity, praxis in general um, is really um, central to everything. And the fact that it's, the fact that we're taught to think of it as something separate and something for later or something for the experts or something for the professionals um, is actually a really damaging thing to everybody's lives, you know. I was just thinking, like, um, like finding your own sort of way of doing things as well, because like, we never sort of like set out to like um, be like I don't know people who made albums or whatever. It was literally just like we started making music every day, like for ourselves, and like maybe because it's like father and daughter, never actually like expected that it would be something that you like you know push for like gigs or something. It really you know it was just sort of like behind closed doors, like just completely like this crazy music kind of thing and. And like um, when driving and stuff, like, you know, just making the most out of like all your time, like never having to like sort of say, this is when we're gonna like rehearse or something. It was just like, you know, you're waiting in traffic, everyone else is just like, you know, staring like completely dead minded and we're just like, you know, beats and stuff, you know, it's great. So you're making every moment sort of count really. Yeah, and like redeeming kind of places, like, you know, like we wanted to make music and kind of, metros or like different like situations where people find themselves waiting and we had this idea of like sessions and queues and stuff just like places where like creative practice just like doesn't like get a chance to actually like happen and these are the places that it should happen more than like museums or like you know even organized gigs because you bring it to people who wouldn't normally like you know go out to like you know seek that kind of thing so it's like it can be more revealing in that way or like you know so, so Will, is this this in? So Fred is talking about these in-between spaces, the sort of rehearsal spaces, and then they become spaces of performance, right? Mm. Much to the bemusement, I imagine, of. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there are lots of videos because um, the car thing actually comes from the fact that obviously Fred was in college, I was at work, so it would that, that they would become the, you know doing chores or going back and forth at college or whatever. Those sorts of things became some of the only times to actually do something. 
So, yeah, we've got lots of videos where the camera might be pointing out the side of the car and you've got people on the bus. <laughs> your videos are terrifying. I mean, there's, I, I would, you should check them out online. But there's one where Will, Will's performing and driving and videoing himself. And you're just waiting for the kind of bus crash. That, it does, does, you know, thankfully, you're all still yeah, here. But I it's, it's, it's worth checking bad. out. If these get more seen, like, we could get into trouble, actually, maybe. Yeah, well, <laughs> they, they are already evidence of a crime. But um, that, that, that's actually... Stopped. It's just because we have this really old Renault Scenic and um, it's from a period... Like the family car as well. It, it was sort of the exaggerates family car. the ridiculousness of like, and, the um, family music thing. And it's a design feature in those like from the early 2000s that they didn't quite... Because they'd worked out how to make a handbrake without one of these, which have come back in now, I've noticed. Okay. But um, in, the, in the design, sort of, um, there was a kind of weird sort of limbo between what, how to design a car... They, they designed these cars with like this huge space in between the seats, which yeah. now, of course, is filled, filled with really convenient things to put phones in and yeah. stuff like that. But that was like perfect to put like a 10-channel battery-up mixer and then, <laughs> and, so, and then have all sorts of synths and amps in the back. So, so we actually did a tour of Europe two years ago with that setup as well. Um, well, so, I was, so, so we're not doing that anymore, I just want to say. Well, we're, but we're I was thinking of asking everyone to bring an object or something, but I think a Renault, Renault Scenic... Putting a Renault Scenic on the table are probably a bit too much. It died last summer on, okay. on the M1, and um, we couldn't get any money for it when we traded it, tried to trade it in. And I'm, I'm really annoyed now that I didn't keep it and sort of put it somewhere in storage because it's a great piece of art. It should have been kept. But All right. Well, that. Okay. Well, well, if you can find another one, the same vintage, I'll... Yeah. I'll uh, we'll, we'll pause for thought for that. <laughs> That Renault scene, but the but the thing that you you were saying though about the um these these sort of in, you know these interstitial spaces these sort of in between spaces and stuff actually happens. Now you know you were saying that you know you're struggling against essentially the sort of administration now of uh, performance mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're saying that these these in between spaces they could be this sort of outlet for um for well, a different approach to thinking. It's really about. political because I mean I've been obsessed with this for years. I mean um, when I was uh, teaching uh, as a music teacher going between schools and being an artist that made music I had less and less time so I started carrying a dictaphone everywhere with me to just record in the car um, you know just, so I'd be doing that on my own which is even weirder actually <laughs> but also drawing books and then I just became aware of the fact that everybody in life generally uh, without really thinking about it or questioning ends up being put in a situation where they waste a heck of a lot of their life like queuing or waiting in traffic or listening to radio that you, they may not necessarily want to be listening to about the news. and So I just became obsessed with this idea that actually... And because making stuff is... I'm addicted to that. You know, creativity is just something that I've... You know, if, if you find it early on, early on in your life, like obviously most people here would have done, then, you know, that's one of the best things you can do. So it, it's very political in the sense that people could, um, you know, that's in it. principle be making stuff all the time if they weren't... Like redeeming, redeeming that waste of like time or something when people see like like I don't know with public transport or something it's just like a means to an end and like you know the time in between is like you know you try and completely ignore it it's just you know but if you like yeah try and like awaken something like in that like moment you sort of bring it back to the present or something well, that's like sort of situationist idea isn't it of um, you create these situations in everyday life and then there's this sort of consciousness raising moment but i remember like some of the ideas i remember tim gain from stereo lab year, uh, years ago used to talk about well what we wanted to do was uh, really just uh, take over a pa system in a supermarket and just play blasts of just uh, just drone or tinnitus inducing whatever but i remember thinking that was great and interesting but people just go that just sounds like noise whereas what you're talking about is these performative spaces where everyday life does happen yeah. You know, and people are uh, sort of in transit, trafficking around, you know, uh, maybe thinking about their lives and other things and, and you know, these sort of wistful moments and how you activate these, these, these spaces. Well, it's like, yeah, go on, say. It's like closing the gap between, like, art and reality as well because art can be, like, in its own bubble sometimes of, like, you know, this is, like, the time and a place or, like you say, like, a hobby, you know, I wouldn't want to say music was my hobby because it's, like... You know, it's like the way I see the world. It's like, you know, with everything that I do. So like like doing music in like these like situations or just like making it like a, a thing that you have like in transformation the whole time. And like when, you know, in your life, like like artists is like, well, art is like a way you see the world more than just like a, a thing that you do like, you know, afterwards. And that's sort of like bringing the music to like different places. Like, you know, we tried stuff like, 
like walking down the street while having like portable sessions as well, sort of like, you know, just being like, this is how I live my life. You know, it's not like some kind of like false or like different thing yeah, that I do. It's an everyday thing. It's reality more than like. But in know. terms of that stereo lab thing as well, that kind of interventionist um, thing, you know, I spent so long, I had a sort of weird period, maybe um, early 2000s, where before Frey was old enough to, to uh, do, no, we didn't plan it that way, it was an accident, but. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I spent, I got into a sort of backwater of kind of avant-garde improv um, scene where I just ended up doing too many gigs which alienated audiences and people would kind of clap and say, oh, that was nice, you know, and, and or interesting or something. And, and I, I, it got me really depressed because I, I knew that um, there was definitely a massive kind of divide between what, what the performer and the audience are doing. So in terms of what, in terms of in, in interfering with people's lives or interventionism, it's like, well, at least make it entertaining as well, you know. And that goes then back to the kind of Sun Ra, George, George Clinton type thing where, you know, what, what they're actually telling the world is, do this, you know, it's, it's really great, you know, and have a good time doing it sort of thing, you know, so. Well, maybe I could bring Jaylin in here, because, you know, what I've read from um, uh, your bio, Jaylin, and I don't know if this is, you know, because bios are a sort of art form and infrastructure in themselves, where they sort of encapsulate a person's life, you know, in a few, in a few paragraphs. But I've heard about, about you is that you worked in a steel mill. And, and are you still working in a steel mill? Thank now? God, no. Sorry? I said, thank God, no. Okay. Okay. So this is, this is music, then. Is it transforming? Um, yes. For me, on the, uh, I... Actually, I had my life is very abstract, so everything I do is like a blank sheet of paper. Actually, most of the time, most people know what's going on in my life before I do. So it's like um, people tell me, like, hey, did you know you were doing this or did you know that you were doing that? And I go, wow, I don't even remember doing that. And then they say, hey, it's all over Facebook. Oh, okay. So um, it's like um, I find myself when creating, I had to kind of everything that I know I taught myself, and my experience is 98% less music and more of having to trust myself, having to look at myself, be vulnerable, be in situations where it was like it's do or die, which is why I named my last EP uh, Freefall, because it's just like I am constantly taking these jumps that are, you like, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. And that, that is my life on a day-to-day -day basis. And most people, I think, they, like, they find themselves in this, uh, it's easy to be complacent. And I hate being complacent because when it's just too comfortable, I just feel like I just want to die. Like, I, it's, I, I can't. And, I, you know, I'm just, I feel just like you with when it comes to creating. If I'm not, if, when I have a creative block, I feel like the world is ending. Like, and so it's just like that that shatters everything for me and also I also have anxiety. So it's just like on top of having as which is why I have a stress ball. So it's this <laughs> so, Yeah, like I have <laughs> Yeah, like I actually I have I carry my stress ball everywhere I go because um I constantly like last night I don't it was uh, I would have to say the first um, 15 minutes of my set was putting me to sleep. And so um, it was like it was it was it was boring. I'm very critical of myself. So it's like it was it was boring me because I was actually I wasn't it wasn't that I was afraid, but I was actually thinking of another I have a, an, a project that is incomplete right now that actually I had just posted on Facebook and I called it Untitled 2016. And I was thinking about, God, I got to finish this project. And then I'm going, oh, wait, I'm in the middle of my set. This isn't the time. Um, you know, so, you know, don't think about this right now. But no, as far as like, uh, I think with the, with the structure, um, I think you have to be, there is a, to me, the art should have never been separated. I think that's a huge problem, first of all. The fact that the arts are separated is terrible because they're all related. They're just, you know, and I wouldn't call them distant cousins. I, I would say they all live in the same household, but we as people separated them. So that's why you have somebody who will come up and say, hey, that's just noise. And it's like, what do you mean? But you live in, the, you, you live in this noise every day. And so how can you say this is just noise? Like I personally, myself, it was very difficult for me. I cannot listen to the radio. 
I haven't listened to the radio in the last 10 years, so I don't know who's out, what's going on. I have no idea because to me it's such a state of hypnosis because they play the same five songs on the radio constantly. And, you know, that that whole pay-to-play thing is... <laughs> the whole what, sorry? That whole pay-to-play thing, yeah. that So many great artists get missed because of that. And it's it's terrible. So, but as far as my creating, it has um, a lot of people tell me that I'm innovative, and it is innovation. I think is very important because don't get me wrong. If you went to school for music, I think that's great. But I think it also can put you in a stagnant place as well sometimes because what happens is you don't go outside of what you learned. And I know people who can't adapt to you know things happen. And they can't adapt because they only know what they've been taught. And it's just like, that's the one, the, um, one of the good things about, I think, being innovative is you can adapt. You're like, you know, a chameleon in a situation. It's just like, oh, this happened. And you go, oh, okay, I can work around that. Or, I mean, I just had a sound check recently that was terrible. Um, that, and the guy goes, he's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said... I said, you're going to, um, I said, you're going to be the audio engineer and let me figure out the rest and we'll make it work. And that's what happened. Okay. You know, it's just, it's, it's a... Well, can I ask you a question then about sure. the, um, innovation then and what these sort of, because it sounds like you're, um, you're obviously very self-critical about the work that you're, you're doing and then you use that, um, you know, that, uh, that understanding about the quality of your own work and your own kind of self-critique as a way of sort of pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. But how do you know then sort of, you know, because y your music now, and particularly that Dark Energy album, that was picked up as being uh, a bit of a landmark, really, for a sort of, not just about footwork, but just about electronic music, mm -hmm. um, technological music, dance music in general. Mm -hmm. Now, um, do you know, you know, when you're pushing something, or what do you need in order to know that you're on the threshold of something new? Is it when you get the moment where you feel like you're just going through patterns or routines, or, or is it something else? No, you get through the, when you know that you have reached something, at least for myself, I get this chill on the inside that is like no other. It's almost like a, um, it's something, it, I feel like, first of all, I feel like I have 20 different people in my body, and then it's kind of like when we're all on the same page, um, which is very rare. So it's kind of like, um, you know, I have, um, I actually have, uh, there, are there are times where like I have, um, I definitely have different personalities. So getting everybody in tune in my body in this one body that we have is kind of hard. So, but I know usually when I'm there, um, kind of like, a, I'll give an example. It took me eight months to do Guantanamo. And, and everybody's favorite question is when they interview me is, was that about Guantanamo Bay? And it was just like, um, and I have to, and I often, I tell people, you know, I don't dictate, you know, how, whatever you take from it, that's what you take from it. You know, I'm not one to tell you, I'm not, I'm not a um, conceptual person at all. I like everything to be just kind of haphazard in a way when I'm creating it because I don't like the idea of having a blueprint to say, this is how you do this, that's how you do that, because who am I to tell you how to do something for yourself? Okay. You know, yeah, okay. so I push the envelope in the way where, um, you know, I create from the belly of the beast, especially in which the beast being this machine crazy society that we live in. So creating in that to me, you know, is is brave within itself. I'm sure you guys can relate. Um, so yeah, I just, you just, it's just a feeling you know after so long. It's just like, um, you have to, it, that comes also with knowing yourself as a, as a person too, not an artist. You have to separate, sometimes separate the two because I think you become an artist when you know yourself, when you're honest with yourself, when you're vulnerable with yourself, when you say, God, I'm an asshole. Or, you know, you know, just being <laughs> honest, you know, with yourself. And it does. It takes some time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Paul, I, I know your work, right? Um, so, you know, you can, you can talk about, because I know I said to you that you could think about an infrastructure or something like that. But I wanted to talk a bit about, a little bit about Empty Set here. Okay. Because Jalen was talking about, you know, um, uh, sort of, it's not a conceptual approach, but your work, your own work, and also the Empty Set work seems kind of concept driven. So um, what are the sort of infrastructures you, you use in order to sort of like realize um, your projects, the conceptual and your projects? Yeah, well, well I guess I was thinking about this thing of um, what Jalen was talking about, this sense of the kind of the separation of the arts. So I think this is a thing that's always kind of like, not haunted me, but being kind of forefront in like my thinking. 
And I think it's from working as a, as a curator in a, in a gallery called Arnolfini in Bristol. And I was going back, I was given the task of going back through the archives um, across the 60s and 70s of their kind of performance program. And there was this a really, from, from kind of categorizing all this material from like Stockhausen, Pauline Oliveros, uh, Cage, Tudor, um, Alvin Lucia, there was like an incredible history there. But it was kind of, had this, this um, amazing sense of disconnect from being inside like an institution like 10 years ago. And seeing that somehow that there was this moment that occurred in like the 60s, 70s, in which like somehow um, music, performance, uh, design, architecture, visual art, um, uh, even kind of poetry and language, were all somehow operating in this kind of unified cultural experiment. And I was looking at the present and it somehow become kind of um, compartmentalized into these very, very refined uh, fields of operation. So I think it was like, somehow I think I've always been trying to kind of reconnect with that moment somehow. And it's, there's been lots of, um, I guess there's like an act of resistance to accepting um, the way uh, the arts is organized, the way it's distributed, like the kind of formalisms that you have to engage with, and somehow trying to kind of um, produce projects, um, kind of not, 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 um, there's a certain naivety to that sense of like, you just have to make stuff and allow it to kind of find its way to be located in the world. And there is, there's obviously like a, a certain um, a level of kind of painful tactical requirement in thinking about that to some extent. But there has to be, you know, there has to be like a certain type of play but then you can just make stuff and kind of throw it into the world. And, and it will find an audience and it will find a way of being located somehow. And I think it's like, um, I guess there's something that I enjoy about that as a, kind of, um, as a kind of spiritual enterprise somehow. Is that you can just, you know, and that's a kind of a joy about making art or music or whatever, isn't it? That you can kind of like operate and produce these artifacts somehow in isolation. And then they can kind of be kind of unfurled, uh, you know, kind of publicly. And I guess the narratives find themselves and are kind of mapped onto it and, and, and whatever. So it's, um, is that something of an answer to something? Yeah. But, but I want to see, because one of the things that, um, so outside the empty set stuff, right, um, one of the things that's interesting about your, um, your label, We Can I Do Control, is you seem to have this, you know, you, you develop this, this notion that there was something um, sort of restrictive about the way in which dance music at a certain point was sort of packaged and organized and sort of presented. And that you were, it seemed to me like you were trying to use the art world or the academy as a way to sort of pop holes yeah. in that. And, um, and, and so maybe could you talk a little bit about the way in which you're trying to like find a sort of space of play between... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, think, it was, I think it was like... Um, I was thinking about... Because you, you uh, instructed us to kind of like uh, produce these, yeah. these moments or something that kind of define how we think about infrastructure or define how we think about operating. I think one of them was was definitely the sense of, uh, you know, not to get too biographical, but like um, I guess of meeting Jeff Mills as a teenager and discovering this whole world of underground resistance of Detroit, of this kind of a very kind of can-do militant sense of projecting ideas out into the world, and the sense that you could just do that with uh, a kind of confidence and belief somehow, and with and with a kind of certain kind of fuck-off attitude as well, like you don't have to be too precious about stuff somehow. So I think somehow I was, like, I was kind of informed by that ability that to, to just make. And then somehow, um, around 2005, um, when I was at the Royal College, I kind of started getting into uh, kind of like SND. John Wozencroft was there that was doing a label called Touch and that was releasing some of the early Rio Giaquida stuff. Um, and then there was this moment of like going to, uh, to like Tate Modern did an event with Robert Henker from Mono Lake and Rio Giaquida and Carsten Nikolai like in the Turbine Hall. This is around like 2004, 2005. I think I just had this moment of just going, oh, you could just kind of do this. This is entirely possible. You know, so it's like a sense that, and I guess it was in a moment where it was like, you know, now it seems very, um, let's say the, uh, the contemporary art world is very aware of the potential of sound and music to have agency of activating audiences to be a device, to be instrumentalized, let's say. Um, so I think it's almost like trying to find a way to kind of work around that somehow, because you don't want to become a fucking instrument of some other institutional agenda or some other kind of like um, zeitgeist phenomena or whatever. You just have to find your own space and your own kind of position somehow. 
But I think there's definitely a certain kind of like, um, a lot of the resources now actually to operate in a multidisciplinary way, let's say, are kind of being exuded by the art world. Um, let's say, you know, there are certain sensors like the ICAST network, the kind of international festival infrastructure that's in play. Um, but still it's, um, yeah, I just think it's like you just have to operate in the cracks somehow, don't you? It's... Well, Peter, but this thing about operating in the cracks then, does, does this make, is this your sort of approach to, um, you know, putting together like the, uh, the, the ensemble of yeah. players, performers <clears throat> and discussions that we have at Borealis? What's the, what's the approach to creating the infrastructure of, uh, of, of something like Borealis? It's uh, that's a good, very good question. I mean, I talk a lot about this idea of um, of kind of going into record shops and there being little labels on everything, and that there's never a gap between the labels for the interesting stuff, right? That that, that forms, and I think a, f a festival in itself is a fantastic opportunity to create infrastructure um, because it allows me as a curator or you know whoever's running it to pull together things that don't necessarily sit in the same space on a day-to-day -day basis and for people to make connections and to create social kind of like conversations between discourse between between dialogues um and that's one of the reasons why i'm not working with themes in in the festival for me because it, it allows me i i i really don't want to tell people what i want them to do i want to create spaces that allow people to to to, to develop their art and actually create bigger spaces than they're normally allowed to do if that's possible um so they can kind of push beyond that and go into a different place um so it's this this kind of idea of taking taking down the the i mean borealis comes from a, a, a history of being a classical music festival which is a which is a genre riddled with infrastructures that you know with architecture of performance and and codes of of, of things that put people off essentially um, and for me it's about bringing bringing all of these architectures down to a lowest level as possible um, that then just allows the art to have a conversation and the audience to be part of that conversation um, which is kind of why we could have um, you know, a, a day like yesterday, with kind of you know a classical ensemble playing new composed music to these four guys playing electric guitar, kind of improvisations to yeah you to Jalen in the same space. And for me, if you get rid of the infrastructures of these of these musical genres that say Jalen has to play in a club, yeah. that you know the the classical guy has to do it in a in a in a concert hall where you know and the performers have to wear ill-fitting shirts you know and you know all these kind of things and the audience has to do this and that and and i think i think the problem with this is that it imposes conditions on the audience that they don't have themselves do you know what i mean so so it's telling the audience that you're not you know you over there who like that concert at the beginning you're not the kind of person who's going to like what jenny's going to do later right so so for me like the fact that we have ensemble pumple moose from america who are composers you know losing their shit in front of her yeah connects all this stuff together, right? I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really the same thing. So, so you're saying that um, like each music um, or, or approach to music or whatever tends to bring with it as, uh, a, a certain institutional culture, but also a particular type of audience. And, 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 so, and, yeah. and obviously that's good, right? Because yeah. you need to have an audience and expectations that are linked into a particular type of art and then those expectations get of challenged. It, can it sounds like you're ways. saying that these things can be little bubbles though that can the might sort of police it, I think there's potential to put um, you can put an ensemble like the Sinfonietta Bit 20 ensemble on here in Bergen and you can put them in a traditional classical music venue and you will definitely get a very limited kind of audience who feels comfortable within that infrastructure performance infrastructure and as we did put them on I mean, this is not to say we did it all right but putting them on in a, in a different venue in a converted meat factory meant I could see the audience was different and I could see that, that, that some of those walls had come down for people. And so, so taking those infrastructures away, which are, which are basically meaningless anyway, I think you know, we still listen to music like they did in the 1840s or whatever, in, in some senses. Um, so I mean, if we can get rid of as many of the, the, the meaningless infrastructures around music and then create conversations, or at least leave space for conversations, and then, we, then you're not demanding the, demanding of the audience. The, I think the other thing to say is that that for a festival, I mean, infrastructure is important, right? I mean, because this, this idea, I think what you say about uh, kind of creation in the in-between spaces in life decouples artistic activity from economic imperative, right? Because if you're already driving to the shops and you're making your record, then 
you know, you're not saying, hang on, I need to take Tuesday off work to do this, right? But there, there does come a point then, if, if you have an aspiration to create spaces for people to develop, one does require infrastructure in order to create, create cash, essentially, and, and create room for that to happen to, you know, we, an example, just we had six uh, artists from Cairo here, which is a kind of a bigger undertaking than, than getting people in from Denmark, because Denmark has a really well-developed music promotion infrastructure, and I can call a guy in Denmark who can say, we can give you some money for some flights, and then it's really easy to have Danish composers here, or it's really easy to kind of to, 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 to talk only within Northern Europe, mm -hmm. right? So if we want to have a, a broader discourse about art from outside of this, then we, we enter into an, a whole other kind of very problematic conversation about infrastructure, and then how do you... The infrastructure stops us having broader conversations, right? So it's kind of, I, I really like this idea, and from an artistic point of view, I think it's brilliant. But then from a curatorial point of view, infrastructure then becomes a limiting factor as to how we can have those conversations. Well, well that, that's a sort of conventional idea then. If you, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the, uh, the big other of infrastructure, which is the economy, right? Sure, you know, yeah. Economic considerations. Uh, restrict the, the the possibilities of culture because it doesn't bring in the bottom line or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I've just put up, I'm not going to go through them, but I've just put up here because I just I do want to get to this, uh, just raise these issues about politics of, of infrastructure and culture. And um, just before I came out today, I was having a coffee and I was just looking at Judith Butler's new book on um, a performative theory of assembly and she was talking about infrastructure. And, and she talks about infrastructure, but, but not as this kind of standard, maybe just a crude like Marxist analysis of the way the economy you know, governs culture or the economy instrumentalizes art. She's thinking about infrastructure as actually everything uh, that the body needs in order to interact with other bodies, in order to create a different sense about what a body politic can become. So she's thinking about um, the way in which assemblies, public assemblies, forms of protest, forms of resistance to power, forms of taking power in the public space are about um, creating new infrastructures which can allow the public realm to be recreated. And so I've just left out these, these sort of lines here because she says some interesting things about when infrastructural conditions for politics are decimated, so too are the assemblies that depend upon them. So this idea of assembling a public, you know, and in our case, talking about the way in which music and, and a curiosity about sound can assemble a public, depends upon um, not just kind of uh, philanthropy and infrastructural support, say, from arts councils or whatever. It also requires a certain critical mass, I think, of audiences being able to articulate you know, that they need spaces in order to hear culture, produce culture. And so this is what I was very interested about what, what you guys were saying about these, these interstitial spaces. So maybe I could just bring the conversation forward a little bit and then I want to put you on the spot, Freya, because you, know, you said you've been thinking then about this thing and if you had any sort of thoughts about it, well, how do you activate this other public sphere, this counter public sphere or this public space that is a space of performance for you but it's a space of sort of everyday life for Well, it's on, for me, it's on two levels. I mean, I would answer that two ways. Um, firstly, going back to what Paul was saying about this idea of just making stuff and, and letting it be there to be found. Obviously, the internet is, in, is now you know, this crazy situation where you can make something and publish it, and it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't discover it for five years, ten years, hundred years. It's there, and once it's there, it is its cultural energy, you know. But um, on the other hand, going back to how it involves people and audiences and what you're calling critical mass, um, one of the things I keep coming back to is that whole um, thing that I guess when you talk about dance music particularly or electronic music now, the history really starts with, um, I guess, the 1950s in Jamaica um, when a certain kind of sound system dancing public, who were going just because they were going to have a good time and you know they'd happy to pay a little bit of money or, or not for a sound system party, a lawn party, and then when the, the records they were all enjoying from, from the sort of southern states, R&B, started to run out because, as some people might articulate, because the, the whole rock and roll thing took off and, and a lot of the flavor went, they suddenly thought, well, we've got to keep making stuff that people want. 
And so, um, you know, that's where Duke Reed brings a bunch of Cox and Dodd and people like that started to actually tell musicians, no, I'd like you to record a record that sounds like this. And that's how now with Ableton and stuff like that, that's what, what everybody does now. Is that I, I need a record that sounds like this because I've got a bunch of people in my local in the community or whatever who are going to have a good time dancing to this tonight or whatever it is. Um, and so in terms of like narratives that go even further back, um, somebody I'm really interested in is a guy called C.L.R. James um, and his book, there's a book, a really difficult book to read, it's his explanation of Hegel's dialectics but it's really worth checking out. Uh, where he's, his starting point is Lenin um, getting increasingly desperate towards the end of his time that he, he felt he'd failed with the project of the revolution and all this kind of thing because what he saw as the secret and the key was what he was terming um, the free creativity of the proletariat. And so that's, that's one of those little nuggets that stays with me. It's like, well, people want stuff. They want to have a good time. They, and it's actually spiritually really important for their daily lives, not just for tonight or whatever or the weekend. It's kind of breaking the like, ideology of like, yeah, like consuming products or like artists as these kind of like separate things as well. Because with improvisation, like the audience is like such a huge like factor like you know like the set last night was like that way because of the vibe of like the room and like the this specific situation like it's it's always like so different and that's what like you do when you sort of take music to these like public like spheres with like this positive interruption you sort of like impose people like make them an audience when they're not expecting to be and they sort of like <laughs> yeah, but they're like also involved because you're sort of like you're feeding off like the 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 environment that you're all in and making people sort of like actually acknowledge the moment rather than just like seeing like like straight through it onto like where they're going next kind of thing. And I would say just going back to last night and what Frey was saying about that um, and relating it back to what, what Peter was saying about assembling something that didn't have a theme or a specific agenda and actually bringing what you call the architectures right down. Um, that's really unusual and, and I find that in terms of how to negotiate economic infrastructures and economic cultural infrastructures, um, so often over the years you've had to kind of misrepresent yourself or lie about what you are or try and fit yourself into some other fixtures. So when Frey is talking about that, some of the hardest gigs for us to do when we actually, we're actually sort of supposed to be part of the noise scene or something mm. and then the whole audience is the noise scene and it's like, like well, all these people do this all the time, you know, so what are we going to do? And normally that's when we make it more pop actually because that's our, our response to that. So actually, you know, no, when we feel more like awkward or sort of imposed, we sort of tend to go more like, I don't know, heavy metal or something, <laughs> you know, it's like the <laughs> well, instinct, the like instinct like is just like to absolutely scream and go like, you know, as crazy as possible somehow when you feel like imposed or there's like a more of a like a certain idea that people are going to have like of what your music should be like it's kind of like, yeah, it's almost like it's a good thing if people find it like, you know, too intense sometimes, you know, it's not like our aim is just to sort of like make something that is like pleasing or that will get like, you know, a good response. It's just that like, you know, you want the energy to be like felt and like, mm. you know, like you want to sort of touch people in that way. So it's Well, Jaylin then, so can you tell me that there's a moment then from what you said like last night where you were thinking, you were thinking about something else while you were performing? Oh, this is like all the time. So what's this moment then? Is it you're thinking about, you know, another project and you think, oh, shit, I shouldn't be doing that, right? right. And, is that, and is that when you suddenly understand that you're in a public situation or, the, you know, because I, I think when everybody was listening to the music, they didn't know you were thinking about something else. Because right. it, 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 as soon as, you know, people are into it and, it, you know, it intensified. But I'm just um, wondering, as well as the, you know, the point about DJing, say, but about this... this you know, what's that moment where you, you, you as a performer begin to feel, you know, there is this sort of um, something else is beginning to happen. You know, you're not just going through the motions. Um, you feel when something else is getting ready to happen, when you there is this energy in the room that is undescribable. I think um, you have to you, you start what happens is you start. The dots in the room start connecting, you being a dot and everybody in the audience being a dot, and all of a sudden you all become this huge dot in one because now everybody's merging together. All these different energies are merging together. And sometimes the energies don't merge together. Sometimes it be, and then it becomes um, almost kind of like a, cha a chaotic thing as well because internally, um, I think like it's very important to... Um, like Peter was kind of saying, you know, with having this space that doesn't have a theme, 
And it because when everything is just so, you know, you have a theme and it's just so systematic and then it becomes very robotic. And then now at that point when it's robotic, it's just like now you have completely closed the space of experience. And it's I think that's you know, that's that's terrible. And that's why these kind of festivals are important. When you get to you get these different artists from different parts of the world and different all these different you know um just wide open you know and you need it to be wide open because if everything is closed it's when it's closed that's why so many things get missed and so it's just it's very difficult like when I went like I know for myself when I'm sitting in the midst of like I'm talking to you all right now and some people in here are bored out of their minds, you know, and that's and that's okay because actually, they're to me, they're the most important. Um, I like the people that who make I, because I, I like people who make me feel uncomfortable more than I like people who are receptive to me because people is is great when no really I think it's a great thing when people who they're just I had somebody actually come up to me and just go I don't understand what you do and I said that's great and I was he and he was he was in shock because he was like. You're not offended, and I said, no. I said, I'm so happy you said that because so many people feel like they have to because you're an artist or you're the, I guess, the headliner or whatever, they feel that they have to, you know, cater to you in a certain way. And I like the fact when people are just like, I have no idea what the hell you do. And it's just like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy, and I'm like, yes, that's what I like to hear, you know? And it's just, I, I like those, I think those uncomfortable situations are important. I think... Um, as far as just even me being in front of, you know, last night and I'm thinking about something else, it, you know, it, it's also those, that's real life moments, um, you know, and I think those are important, you know, even for me to share that with you, that being honest enough to tell you, yeah, you guys, I was playing, I was playing in front of you all, but I was thinking about something else. And, you know, it was just like, you know, it's just, it's, it's just honest and it's just very real. I, th I think there's something really interesting here about what you're saying about like creating these spaces for the public uh, and also for the artists where things can fall apart and they can fail, right? I mean, because there's an enormous potentiality in, in stuff not working. Um, exactly. But we're terrified of letting that happen, obviously, right? I don't want to put up a festival that fails, but I want to I create the potential for failure in order to, to find that next place for it to go to. I, I, I've said this before, but I... I don't mind if people don't like the stuff I put on, but I do mind if they don't come because we've done the infrastructure of the festival puts them off. I'd much rather somebody comes along and says that was awful, and then we're, when we're having a conversation, right? Then we're talking, and then we can then right. we can talk about why it is, and then that's exactly. an experience. That's a broader discourse, and I think it's activating that public discourse that is important. But, but it sounds like what you need then is you need to have. Um I'm not talking about having a safe space where everybody can, can talk frankly about their feelings about what happened right now. But it's, you know, it's more us. You need the awkwardness. In awkwardness Absolutely. is an energy, as, as John is, Lydon did in, say. It's, but, it's, it's very. It's so important. You have to have that awkwardness. And I'm so happy you said that. Failure, if as just as an artist, I have to say, failure is the most important thing yeah. of everything that you do. If you are afraid to fail you won't make it. And the yes. reason your failure is more important than your success. You ha and that's just in life in general. You have to fail because you won't learn if but, you But don't. this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because mm -hmm. infrastructures are, are supposed to be those things which do not fail. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, and, and therefore, when infrastructures do fail, you know, we might think about um, policing, say, right? If mm -hmm. the police force fails and it's uh, attacking members of... Uh, uh, ethnic groups, black communities, mm -hmm. then, you know, that's, that, that's an infrastructure failure which is absolutely catastrophic. Mm -hmm. When we think about environmental failures, we think about Flint, Michigan at the moment, you know. Inf it, the infrastructure th is the thing which isn't meant to fail. Now, these are big issues, big questions, right? But even at the level of, say, a cultural festival, you know, you, you know it, an individual artist's work might not be as successful, and, and that would be fine, but the whole thing you know, it, it's seen as a disaster, you know, if, if you don't get the audience right. And that must, that's where the burden of anxiety may sort of restrict the abilities to be as experimental as you'd like to be, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, last year's festival, two days before it started, Norwegian Air went on strike. And we had 80% of our artists flying in on Norwegian Air. That's like a massive infrastructural failure that, you know, was mildly stressful. Um, uh, 
I mean, freedom to fail, I don't know. Tina's, Tina's still here. We, we, we talk about this a lot. Um, Tina's just left, okay. Um, but we talk a lot about actually the infrastructure of the festival cannot fail because it has to serve the audience and the artists, right? So, I mean, and a shout to my incredible team who actually don't fail and make this all happen. But if the infrastructure works and doesn't fail, then nobody notices it's there for a festival, right? So if your car gets you from the airport on time, if the sound technician knows his job, if the person with the programs is there to hold open the door, if the guy is giving away tea is here, which he is, by the way, there's tea outside. You know, all, the, all these things, if they're there, they disappear. And then the conversation is only about the art. Do you mean? But if the concert starts half an hour late and the sound is shit and nobody knows where the toilets are, then nobody listens to the music. No, seriously, nobody listens to the music. They all come out and go, fucking hell, you know, can you imagine? We were waiting in the cold for half an hour and I really needed a piss. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the conversation is then not about what's happening, which is what it should be. So I, my feeling around, around that is that the, inf, like the, the infrastructure of a festival has to be as, as robust as it can be in order to allow the artist to fail. Okay. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, I mean, it's about yeah. creating room yeah. for failure or yeah. the, the potentiality of failure within the art, not, I don't want the potentiality of failure within my driving team, yeah. right? That, that's right. A, that, that, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, actually yeah. just experienced that uh, I, my, I had a driver drop me off at the wrong hotel, so it was kind of like... <laughs> not, not at this festival, <laughs> no, right? No, not at okay, this just, just Yeah, so it was clear. just like... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, so I, mean, I, I know, I, I understand it, but you know, there was something that happened yesterday here that I was very happy it happened. It was uh, me and the audio engineer were having a. We were really we were trying just trying to get sound to come out of the speaker, and I was it, you know. But it, we came to this conclusion. I said, you know, had this sound check went too smoothly, I would have been terrified when it was time to perform, because I it, to me the best performances is when the most chaotic situations have happened right before you perform. That's always been a way for me because when it goes too smoothly, I'm like. Oh my God! What is about to happen? That's the way I feel. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I I think there is something because you talk about the kind of improv scene and this kind of there there is an energy in in chaos and in chaotic infrastructures. But I'm not just I don't I don't know how that works for for anything other than a grassroots public. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that sense where it's um like once again looking at music now. Like one of the things that makes me really positive, like even like last night is the sense that like you don't have that those problems where it's like you turn up for a gig and it's you know that those those um kind of esoteric kind of micro scenes like the noise scene where you turn up and it's kind of a very kind of like formal you know you know it's like the great thing about the global festival network blah blah is that it's kind of created these very fluid um dynamic uh, very diverse audiences that are listening to lots of music and it's like you, it's like it, it may be a manifestation of like the boom catification of the world in which like somehow everything's just become a lot more liquid. But to me, that feels really positive. Because I remember like 10 years ago, it was like you're either into house, you're into techno, you're into noise, you're into fucking whatever. But now it's like... That's a great category there. Yeah, that yeah, that one, one that yeah, end one. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there's something really, um, you know, and I think this moment feels very special. And I think it's like actually a lot of people kind of are hypercritical of everything that's going on in music and the festival circuit. But actually this is um, a certain infrastructure is being made now that, that is creating something actually quite special for music and music audiences and music consumption and distribution. So I think there's, maybe I'm always positive about stuff, but I think, you know. Well, well just to be hypercritical uh, about that uh, for a minute then, because I noticed that, um, that this work by Matt Jenner in the description of the program, it talks about nowness. And, and it, and, you know, what you were saying, Peter, about um, chaos being, you know, useful and productive. Well, in a way, sort of, you know, the way capitalism works in culture, because we talked earlier about the way, you know, there's an old-fashioned analysis which says that capitalism tells culture what to do, or, or culture is a residue after profit-making decisions have been made. But there's another way of thinking about it now, which is that capitalism is actually about, is interested in chaos, in creating precarious states, exploiting awkwardness, um, in order to find out how people feel and you know what their tolerances are, what they want, and, um, and I'm just wondering, you know, is this uh, sense of infrastructures being a being able to sort of reform themselves around the needs, say, of genres to diversify? Do you see that being bound up with, you know, the way in which um, 
um, you know, arts administrations or, or companies who are interested in marketing music are interested in finding new angles to, you know, to regenerate a city, say, or to market a different type of product to a different just, type of audience. Just as a, a weird addition to that, I had a conversation with someone from Red Bull Music Academy recently, and I've always been very, I don't like Red Bull, I don't really like energy drinks. And there's that thing, there's that difficult sense of like, I don't really understand that relationship. You know, obviously there's, a, there's some kind of tangential connection between the two of them. But someone from, I shouldn't say this, someone from Red Bull Music Academy was kind of quite um, aggressively trying to communicate to me that Red Bull Music Academy was a separate enterprise to Red Bull, the energy drink, despite being kind of clearly branded, operating, and, it, and almost with this kind of um, cultish sense of belief that somehow that they were operating in this... Um, uh, kind of position outside of kind of uh, a kind of rapacious kind of capitalist machine index, you know, that they were somehow doing this kind of really worthy operation. And, and it's that difficult thing where somehow it's like you've got to, once again, it's this thing of operating in the cracks. It's like, as an artist, you have to be branded with a fucking energy drink. Like, is that, that, is that a thing that, and there's a, there's a kind of status that's kind of made available to you by you end up with a video on the Red Bull website and you get certain degrees of access and, the, and visibility or whatever. But there's, um, yeah, there's a double-edged sword of all of that Isn't stuff. Great? Like yeah, I, I totally uh, have to agree with that because of, I've been in some situations where, you know, you try to do things by the books, and because my name is Jalen, it's like, um, and and sometimes, and, and, and I hate that because, I, to go back on what you said, because it's just like, it's like, there it, because then it's become, it's this clickish thing. And it's like, oh, that's Jalen. And I'm like, I don't give a damn if I'm Jalen. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just like, um, because I it's like my music could completely suck, but because I'm branded as Jalen, it's okay, or this is okay, because that's Jalen. Who gives a damn? And at least I don't. And so it's just like, um, that's why you have so many shitty artists out now, because you have there is there is a corporate, you know, this huge corporation and capitalism pushing something that is complete shit. And it's it's terrible. I mean, I, I've, I've listened to, there are artists that I listen to on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, I, I love Holly Herndon, and um, I've collaborated with her. And me and Holly, are we are from two totally different sides. Of She's very conceptual, and I'm abstract. So it's like... We, but we have this. In the, we meet in the middle as far as the ideology of the of just loving the creation and not being driven by this. Oh well, people like to listen to this, or they like to listen to that. It's like, don't get me wrong. Yes, we enjoy when people love our work, but at the same time, it's like, why do I have to be driven by, like you said, a damn energy drink? That's ridiculous. I think it's crazy. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, um, it's like, you know. Red Bull is streaming this, and it's like, yeah, but it's like that's great. I mean, if, if you if that's what they want, fine. But you know, it's it's just so driven that you know this is what you know you have. It, this has to be done a certain way, and it's just like that's ridiculous because in in the midst of that, you're still pushing that capitalism. It's just pounding constantly. But it, but it seems to be the um, the way the way capitalism manifests itself in culture. It's not necessarily about pu pushing particular types of messages, say. So it's not about pushing necessarily the Red Bull or whatever message. It's more about the, the PR needs to be streamlined, say. It, it, you know, the, the, the infrastructure of the capital needs to be very slick or it needs to be very contemporary, very now. That's what it's looking for rather than maybe, the, you know, the clarity of the product placement. I, yeah, I think it's... Um, I mean, I think as we... And fortunately, we're not in that position yet in Norway, but we're very lucky... Um, as, as kind of state funding or, or, or kind of funding in general declines across the arts, we're looking at this space where, where the corporate, corporate sector is filling some of that gap. So I know a lot of artists who are, who are increasingly willing to try and work in that space because they need money for their projects, right? I mean, we can't, we can't get away from that. But, um, but I think there's an interesting thing with, with uh, for example, like Nowness, the, the, the website, which is a... A British website that kind of showcases video content that's funded entirely by Louis Vuitton, um, but it's not a Louis Vuitton handbag in every, in every, in every shot, right? It's it's kind of you don't even know that the money's behind it, but it's this kind of low-level brand association with with a kind of aesthetic, um, and and more and more people are moving towards that, and that's problematic in a whole different way. But you know, Monocle and Korean Air and all this kind of stuff is is there. Um, what? So Freya and Will, can I just so just ask you one more thing, and then maybe we'll open it up. Um, 
because it seems like you guys made a, a decision then, right? That, or you know, you were disillusioned with the noise audience, right? Or the, or the noise protocol to, to in events. And then you wanted to go back into pop or back into exploring uh, an enjoyable form of music. So yeah. how do you look at it from that, that, that perspective? Like, um, it's a bit like with the sort of label thing of like your name, like being labeled as exper experimental, like improvised music. It's sort of like you, you can't like go wrong and then it, you lack that sort of potential for failure if you're just playing with experimental artists. So to call yourself pop and then do like some kind of warped pop that's really like, you know, like experimental and not like pop because it doesn't stay in like a structure or rhythm so much is like, you know, it's a, it's a better like um, place to start from, you know, because then you still have like room to like, like shock people or to like, you know, be outside of a category. And yeah, I guess. Well. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or just to turn a situation around. Um, yeah, I mean, that improv thing, that we're, the, my main problem with that is that um, if you actually advertise something as an improv scene and as an improv event, then you're already telling the audience, look, it might not sound any good, but they're in, they are making it up on the spot. <laughs> Give them a break sort of thing. And, um, and I thought that oh, it just lowers the bar so much. You know, how about let's have a really good time <laughs> and, um, and see what we can do. So to me, that the attraction of, of never composing stuff means that um, if you get really good at it, then you can be in a situation where you're sort of enjoying the music either as on the record or in the gig as a member of the audience yourself, except you've got this superpower controller saying, oh, actually, I can make this happen now, and I can completely dismantle it mm. in seconds. So, um, is that, was that what the question was about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, I want to say thank you to Luis Marino, Jalen, Paul Pergis, Will and Frey from Yeyu, and Peter Meanwell for the talking. And thank you to Bergen Kunsthal for hosting us. The talk was presented in collaboration with Bergen Assembly and supported by Fritt Uhr. See you next month for another conversation from the archive. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. That will help us get the word out to more people about Borealis Samtala. And for those of you who don't know, Samtala means conversation in Norwegian. Ta-da!